Hi there. My name's Ryan Bernston, and this is 50 States of Mind, a cross-country journey to all 50 states to talk to mayors, governors, and voters on both sides of the aisle to figure out what's really going on in the United States. I'll be honest, when I started this trip, I wasn't optimistic about the state of our country. But after visiting our neighborhoods, towns, and communities, I've been given an exciting education that has allowed me to listen, challenge my preconceived notions, and taught me something new. Are you ready? Let's go. Episode 10, Delaware. Okay, this is 50 States of Mind. I think we're in the double digits as far as the episodes go. But we have a very special guest with us today. What's your name, sir? Hi, my name is Logan. Yeah, hi there. Um, Yeah, Logan from South Africa. Tell me a little bit about where you're from. Uh, Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Cape area of South Africa, which is on the southern tip, right on the southern tip of South Africa. And the small town that I grew up is really nestled in the mountains on what they call the wine route. So all around there, when the Dutch settled in the Cape, they had a lot of sort of big wine areas and sort of fruit cultivation and things like that. Um, So when I was growing up, it was a very small town, kind of, and it kind of grew and grew and grew, and it's effectively now become an extension of Cape Town itself, which is the sort of nearest big big city. It's an interesting country. It's a very very new country. I think it's twenty five years since uh, since the end of apartheid. So effectively, South Africa is only twenty five years old. Were you and, there during apartheid? Yeah, so I was there. I mean, I was there um, throughout it. So part the end of apartheid was when basically when I was finishing primary school. So I remember very clearly. My first real memory of what was going on was turning, watching this on the TV, the massive queues that they had for the election when the majority of South Africans, this is the first time they ever were allowed to vote. And How did that come about? So Nelson Mandela was released from prison in the 92 and the government at the time, which was the, called the National Party, which was the kind of apartheid government at the time, effectively, kind of long story short, I think they just saw the writing on the wall from from both international pressure and just on their own thing, and they thought, you know, something had to had to change. With Nelson Mandela being released, he became the leader of the ANC, the African National Congress. And over those sort of two years, they effectively then had a the first open elections where the ANC could then run with Nelson Mandela as the head of that party. Uh, as a young child, like in primary school, I went to a non-government school, so it was slightly different, um, where it was mixed so there were sort of people who of my age who were not white and it kind of could could go to my schools but if you were in a state government school it was strictly separated and that was right up until as i say to the late midnight or 94 was the end of the end of that segregation how common was it to have a school like that um it's not that common no not that common it depends on the area you grew up in because where i grew up as i say was quite a small town it was probably more separated you know, I didn't live in some inner city, so where I think it would be a bit more mixed, different different cultures and things. So it was quite small, quite isolated in that sense. Um, and only now, kind of a lot older, looking back, I think you realise the kind of um, sort of media control and censorship that kind of went on as well. So that's quite interesting, kind of exploring retrospectively the country that I, I knew. And the, the best thing about it is that most of my teenage, you know, high school years, going to university, I went to university in South Africa as well, was when it was going through what they called the, the, the rainbow nation. So this real feeling of, this overwhelming feeling of um, positivity and people looking forward to like, this is really the chance that we're going to make something of this, which is, which is really exciting. 
So were you aware at the time growing up what was going on? Or is it easier now to look back and say, oh, uh, I see the big political changes? Mm. I don't think, I don't have a memory of as a young child knowing what was going on really. No, I think I was, one, I think I was probably quite protected from it, both consciously, but my parents probably, um, but also just what was available to you and the kind of media and things like that. So it was kept quite under wraps, what was really happening, I think. Did you, and you obviously don't have to talk about this, but um, among the white people that you knew, what was the feeling? I mean, I think, I think not personally. Um, as I think, I think I grew up in a very liberal background and very open. My, um, my aunt, for example, was quite involved in sort of anti-apartheid activity and things like that. But I think it's worth acknowledging the kind of trauma that a country like South Africa is experiencing, both on both sides. And I think it's the same when you have any culture where you've got one group has experienced um, advantage and have a certain lifestyle they're used to, and that's suddenly taken away from them. There's the trauma of losing that status that they had. I guess, in some way, there is a similarity between South Africa and the US, and obviously in terms of the particularly, I think it's more recent perhaps, but the sense that you've kind of gone through a dark past, particularly about racial segregation, now you sort of come out and we're like, oh, we've dealt with all that, we're this new nation... None of that exists. We've kind of we've we've confronted the kind of that dark side, and you know we're the good guys now. Um, but you know it never really works out. Works out like that. It doesn't. Um, and what about recently? I know that there have been some new policies that have been enacted over just the past few years in mm. South Africa. Yeah, um, it's interesting. I wrote an article quite recently about. And I actually was thinking about that on the way in before about this conversation because it was actually drawing the, par- the parallels between South Africa and the US in the fact that South Africa has just come out of having um, an absolutely awful president who was this real like populist president who rose up. Um, white or black? He was a black, okay. black um, member of the, the ANC. Um, and he rose up, as I say, sort of populist vote, very much more like build himself as like one of the people... Um, it was just absolutely awful. And he was just a basically, uh, and now he's now actually going through a series of trials looking at corruption and other things like that. And the article was drawing the parallel between South Africa being a model for the US of what it's like, what it could be like after Trump. Because the similarities between the cultures are quite similar in that, um, the US, South Africa has obviously got a huge, as you can imagine, a huge disparity between the really wealthy and the really poor. It's got really fantastic urban kind of centres which are very liberal and then kind of um, big swathes of countryside and farming and things like that. So there's quite, and also I think there's quite a lot of cultural similarities and links there. So it's quite an interesting kind of look forward to see what would it could be like. Um, and Zuma, who was the, the president, they kind of, that was two years ago, I think, was forced out after huge mass protests saying, we don't want this man to be our president anymore <laughs> because of that, because of the corruption yeah, because of the corruption and his involvement with, you know, in nefarious groups of outsiders. If the South African model is a potential predictor for the U.S., mm. what's going to happen? What happened there? Still to be confirmed, I think, is probably, <laughs> probably the answer. So there's a new, a new chap on board. I think it's obviously, I guess they're both, they're both new countries. They're both still trying to find their feet, maybe South Africa more so, because of its kind of more recent past. But 
there's still a struggle going on between those people who quite like the fact that they had their they had the kind of connections with people and they kind of like the fact that they could wheel and deal uh, not and so trying to sort of clean that out I think is is the, is the challenge but you still have the issue of you know the populist the populist vote South Africa apparently it came through recently as one of the most populist countries in terms of people feeling left behind or underrepresented by politicians mainstream politicians Mm. And um, probably crosses both sides, white and black. Yeah, yeah. increasingly so. Increasingly so. The division is less black and white, and it's now more income-based, I think. So wait, there's this land redistribution policy? Yeah. So that's actually interesting because that got a huge um, press in the U.S. I think Trump picked it up, and it's complete nonsense. Um, I mean, it is a conversation that is ongoing in South Africa, and there is still an issue of redistribution of land. And either whether it's land that was taken away from people and should be, you know, returned, or it's just how do you equal out the balance between, you know, historical imbalances. Um, but I think the story was that South Africa was going down this kind of the Zimbabwe route of reclaiming land without compensation. Compensation. So, so South Africa, the, the theory was that South Africa was going down the route Zimbabwe went, which is reclaiming land without compensation. We talked to Marco about that. Yeah. And that was, yeah. um, it sounds like no one really won in that case. No, I don't think anyone does because it just, one, I think it opens up all the wounds from the past, creates that division again along racial lines, which you're trying to get away from. The problem is, as soon as you do that, you kind of, you take the land away from those who are, those who are established there, you give it to somebody else, you're kind of setting people up for the fall as well because they might not have the experience or the backing or the training and it's kind of just a self-fulfilling, this kind of loop that just goes round and round again. Do you feel like there are international misconceptions about South Africa? Yeah, I think there's an, I think that's, yeah, I, I think that's the case for all of Africa as a rule. I think South Africa is always going to be dominated by, you know, Nelson Mandela and apartheid and that kind of that history. I think the difficulty, and it's probably worth understanding, is that changing, a, because South Africa has come out of what it's come through, it's generally, since, since 1994, there's been one party in government than African National Congress. So, because that's the, the party that brought the people out of, out of apartheid. It's sort of Nelson Mandela's party, and it's that one. So they have always had the majority, and they are very unlikely to lose that in the near future. So even changing a terrible president doesn't change everything else that's around that. So it's almost like if you took Donald Trump out, you still live with the Republicans, how much of what's left behind is still going to be, you know, they're just going to put another person in his place. Or even if they put an amazing person in his place, how much can that person actually kind of weed out everything else? So the party sort of started as this transformational, uplifting party, and because it's been in power so long, it's sort of curdled into something yeah. corrupt. Yeah, I think there's a general trend around people who, if you grew up during this during the struggle, during the party struggle, if you were actively involved and you hear some people who you saw as your, you know, these incredible idols or icons kind of standing up and fighting against the government, kind of freedom fighters, they've then gone into positions of power and took into the government and haven't lived up to the same ideals. Um, it's hard to do. It's hard to do. And I think it's easy to get swayed and kind of lose your way. Is there a sense that if you don't vote for the... Um, ANC. ANC. Yeah. If you don't vote for the ANC... What do you vote for? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, there are, I think, again, going back, it's only a very new country. So they're still waiting on a, like a strong opposition to, to develop or to grow. Mm-hmm. I saw a um, fantastic cartoon, actually. They just had the recent election, um, national election in South Africa. And there's a very famous cartoonist 
political cartoonist called Sapiro. And he had drawn a sketch of this man going up to vote and to get his ballot paper, um, which apparently had something like 140 different parties that you could choose from. Absolutely massive because everyone wants to get represented. Everyone wants to have a voice. And it's not like somewhere in the UK where it's been hundreds of years and they weeded out to the sort of the big, well, used to be the big two. Anyway, different conversation. But um, <laughs> so anyway, he'd gone to the ballot paper, he went to the ballot box and to get his ballot paper, there was a toilet roll and he kind of pulled his pulled his toilet roll, did his vote, threw it in the toilet. Um, so <laughs> you can, there's a feeling of how much is it, how much is it going to change? Yeah. Um, yeah, what can you do? It was such a young democracy. Yeah. Do you think any other party will catch fire in the near future? Yeah, I them? think so. I think this this year, um, and I'm yeah, I just I'm sort of being away from it now. But I was reading recently. This was the the even though they had still the majority, it's a lot less than usual, and there are other parties coming up, um, some quite extreme parties on either wing, um, but sort of definitely people sort of saying well. There's an opportunity for a kind of protest post vote, I guess. Mm-hmm. So. You drew the parallels with America, mm-hmm. which was a uh, great segue. Have you uh, <laughs> ever been to America before? I have only been once to the US. I have been to Chicago. You <laughs> stole my heart. I have been there and I did have a very good time. Yeah, it's a lovely place. Lovely, lovely city. What were you doing in Chicago? I was there for a week. I went out to spend some time with a friend of a friend to really to explore Chicago's theatre scene. Um, so I spent a week out there. Um, yeah, because it came about because I read this article. I, I heard that Chicago was a great city for new work, particularly. And so I wanted to find out why. And I went out there and spent six, oh, six days a week going from theatre to theatre, talking to people. And it was amazing. Some fantastic theatre. It was incredible. Is it, it really does have that spirit of of that you can create something. Yeah. People actually come watch it. It doesn't have to be through the big institutions like Goodman mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Steppenwolf, even though they're great yeah. quality. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was part of the fact that it had this sense of it's kind of a very gritty city. It's very much like, I'm just going to do it. It felt like nothing. Doesn't, I'm not going to worry about anyone else. I'm just going to do this thing. I've got... A group of people, we're going to put on a play, and if people come see it, great. Um, yeah, and there's something like 250 theatre companies, active theatre companies in, in Chicago. And growing. And growing. And it's like, and it's not that big a city, you know? Um, so that was, yeah, it was fantastic. And that was my first and only um, sort of introduction to the US. I mean, I'm so biased. <laughs> I'm so glad that you went to Chicago. The food, the theatre. Yeah. The architecture. Yeah, it's good. It's the whole package. It was, it was. And it felt like, um, yeah, it did feel like kind of America in a nutshell for, to me, which I mm. think is quite interesting. Yeah. Well, I know you've, um, you've been up at night <laughs> wondering I have. what state I have. we are going to talk I've about today. I've been in a state. Yeah, you've been in a real <laughs> state of mind. Um, so tell me, what mm. do you know You're about right. the state of Delaware? Delaware. Delaware. <laughs> what do I know about Delaware? Silence. Not a lot. I probably couldn't even place it on the map. That's okay. There's not a lot to know about Delaware. What is the capital city of Delaware? Dover. 
Okay, I didn't even know that. Yeah, I, thought, I, I thought that would give me a, <laughs> like an in. I'd be like, oh, I know. Can, no. Okay, this this might be your only... The only... There are two things that make Delaware famous. Mm-hmm. One is a person. Okay. And a person that's been in the news a lot lately. And the second is a, a weird financial fact about it. It's a very old person <laughs> who may have helped. Oh, is this... Is No. No. It's Joe Biden. Uh, I was going to no. I was about to say Bernie Sanders. Like, no, he's not in Delaware. <laughs> Vermont. Yeah, so Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Sort of, okay. All right. He is... If you know Joe Biden, yeah. you kind of get... Okay. I was going to say, it's quite like down, like homey. Like, is that the wrong word? I don't know what that means. Like... Yeah, it's kind of hard to put into words. It's very small. Salt of the earth. Salt of the earth. And so the theme of this trip to Delaware became libraries. Okay. Uh... I stayed with a pastor named Jim Hawkins, who I met at a playwriting conference. So my friend Julie and I went, and our community service there was to do a reading for this fundraiser to raise money for a new library. Mm -hmm. So the town we stayed in was called Smyrna, Delaware, very small town. And they have just this tiny public library that's maybe the size of this room. Uh, Not very big at all, just a few books on the wall. And the entire town has been trying for about 10 years to get a new library because it's not just a library anymore. It's a place for, you know, classes to be taught, Uh, businesses to rent out rooms. They're saying that we need to do something Mm -hmm. about getting this library here. And I showed up and the former mayor was there and gave this impassioned speech of why libraries are so important. And so that kind of started me off on this search to figure out what makes Mm -hmm. a library. Yeah. Why is a library important? So I went down to Dover, Mm -hmm. which is the capital. And I interviewed this woman who is the head librarian of the Dover Library. And we're going to listen to a little bit of an interview with her about uh, how the library came about and why cool. it's important. And I, I know very well the struggle that Duck Creek is going through. I actually have talked to them several times about our process here to build this library. It took more than 20 years to build this library. Oh, wow. They're going on 12, so yeah, eight yeah. more years. It takes a long, <laughs> long time. It, it really does. What, why? Why is that? Do you th- like what kinds of things were you coming up against in those twenty years? Well, there's always the issue. There's never enough money in any community, and so there's always an issue of whether how should tax dollars be allocated. And what do you think people think when they hear library? And what does library actually mean in practice as far as how it functions in the community? Well, I think I think how people think about libraries has changed. Um, and I think how libraries function in communities have changed. I mean, we used to be, we used to be a, a warehouse for books where people would come to read the newspaper and you know, maybe if they were lucky, have a cup of coffee in the library um, and you know get their favorite book to read. But that has really, in the last probably 35 years, has just really, really changed. And I think that libraries now are more community centers mm-hmm. than they are book warehouses. And I think, I think they need to be that. I think that's really important. The, the downside to that, though, is it has changed the public's perception of the libraries. Uh, libraries are no longer the beloved book institution that they were for hundreds of years because now we do things like we serve um, marginalized populations and we welcome everybody into our building and not everybody likes that. Um, so it's, it can be very controversial. 
and that's something that it sounds like they're up against in uh, Smyrna, that they hear library and they think homeless. Absolutely, yeah. And do you serve a homeless population here? Do you offer services? Well, we don't offer... I mean, we've, we have a really... There's a really big population of homeless people in, in Dover. And um, at one time or another, almost all of them spend time in our building. What we found is they're, they don't come into the library for services. They, they don't want services. They're not interested in that. What they want is someplace to sit that's not in the rain, not in the snow, not in the 115 degree humidity outside. So they just need a place to be. And whether or not the library is the most appropriate community place for that, I'm not sure, but there aren't any other alternatives for them. And do they take advantage of the books, the internet? Yeah, uh, some of them do. Um, Some of them are on the internet all the time. We have a guy that comes every day. He's been coming here for a couple of years every day. And he sits in the same chair out there and he reads all day long. He goes to the bookshelf, he gets off books, he reads. When he's done at the end of the day, he puts the books back and he goes on his way and comes back the next day. And do you think that the Dover community takes full advantage of the library? No, I don't. Um, We're a really busy library. We're busy all the time, but we're not serving all of the community. Some of our community won't come here because we let the homeless use our building. But that's their choice, and they have other libraries that they can go to, or if they want to spend their money and buy all of their books on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, they can do that if they're lucky enough to have those resources. But not everybody is lucky enough to have those resources. Have you ever been so busy that you were like, I wish I had an intern? I've been there between grad school and driving to all 50 states? Well, thanks to Gen M, now you can. Gen M offers you an apprentice for 90 days to help with your business, no matter if it's a startup or a podcast. You can search for apprentices based on skills, languages, and countries, and swipe through countless options to find the perfect person to help you grow your business. I'm such a fan of my apprentice that I'm offering everyone who signs up $10 off for clicking the link in the bio of the episode. So what are you waiting for? Start looking for a teammate today. Okay, so what did you get out of out of that? It's really interesting. I mean, I think I think that question about what is the library doing or what is the library for is is fascinating. I think I'm sure that's one that many countries, I know that they have that here, kind of it's filling a gap that isn't being answered or solved by anyone else, you know, having a sort of a community centre for a place for people to go who don't have anywhere else to go isn't really, it's great that they're doing that, but it isn't really what the library was obviously not intended to do that. Yeah, I remember a shift when I was a bit older and South Africa started to change a bit more and I think things weren't quite as hidden away mm-hmm. and quite as, they weren't as segregated. I remember as a child, the sort of library, which was quite in the centre of town, the area started to change, I think. So there's some quite similar thing, actually. It's the sort of question of who, who is the library for, the sense of community, but not whose community is it, I think is quite interesting. What do you think about the idea of homeless people in libraries? Do you think that that's, uh, based on what you've seen uh-huh. in London over here, do you think that's a, 
a legitimate concern or I think it's I think the more the bigger concern is that there is there is nowhere else for them to go and I completely understand it if I was in that situation you would go to somewhere like the library it's open and it's safer and it's dry and books, books. <laughs> um, <laughs> comics absolutely it's books and comics um, I'd totally be there but I think it's yeah I think it's unfortunate and I can understand the kind of concerns that people would have around if it became a place where people were going to go and who's there and issues around security or safety, you know, whether it's right or wrong, I can understand people having those concerns and thoughts. Definitely an interesting question. Okay. I think I'm just going to tell you a little bit about how it all shook out with yeah. the, uh, with the library. So we went to a fundraiser at a church mm-hmm. and, uh, I think I read a children's book for a group of adults. Okay. Like, I think they were expecting to be a fundraiser like kids came. So yeah. I'm reading like Bartholomew and the Ublick and then for like 70 year old women. Okay. They, I think they liked it. But, um, <laughs> but it, it was really, and especially in a small town, you see the need for these spaces because it's not like they can rent a we work mm. when they need to have a meeting. Uh, there's a, like an opera house mm-hmm. that's really old and historic, but there aren't places that are gathering places unless you want to go to a bar mm-hmm. or a restaurant. They don't have those places to chat or yeah. workshop. And you just saw so much passion, especially from this woman who's the the former mayor, that everything kind of revolves around this one institution that can solve mm-hmm. a lot of problems. You just reminded me, my mother had like a pathological fear of librarians. Like so much so that when she knew a book was late, she wouldn't go back to the library. She'd give it to me as like a 12-year-old and say, Logan, take these books back to the library. She was terrified of them. I don't know why. I mean, they weren't that, they weren't going to like jump over and beat her with a book or anything. It's scary, man. To get a bill from the library. We one time got like a very expensive <laughs> bill because we didn't return horrible hair or whatever. My, my sister was saying that they borrowed a book with her son and then they lost it and it was overdue. And she went back saying, I've lost this book. Can I just pay for it and just buy it? And they're like, no, we'll extend it. We'll extend it. And she's like, you're just keeping me. You're just holding me. It's like perpetual purgatory. Like, I just want to buy the book. No. Wow. Yeah, once they've got your, their claws in you. Maybe this is why people don't want yeah. They're also like, it's forget the homelessness, forget the yeah. like, multi-purpose. It's just people are scared of librarians. People are scared of librarians. It's, it's, it's on the libraries for better PR, I guess. Yeah. So I think that's all I have for Delaware. It's a small state. It's not an interesting person. It's okay. a small state that <laughs> may not have a lot of drama. No drama, Delaware. And it's kind of nice to have the major concern be libraries. Yeah. For a lot of people and some of the other podcasts, it's like crime in yeah. my neighborhood. Yeah. Like... Yeah, that'd be quite nice, actually, if that was your main only concern, really. So it's a it's a plug for, plug for Delaware. Mm-hmm. They need people. Yeah. So... It's not like one of these states that give you, give you money. Like Vermont will give you $10,000 if you move there. Really? Yeah. So, you know, you have to work remotely for another company, but don't we all work remotely as yeah. writers? So you, ha- you have to live there, but you can't work for a company that's based there. Mm-hmm. It seems odd. Yeah. Well, they're trying to create property tax revenue, but not have to give space to another person because there aren't enough jobs. It's quite an idea. Is there anything else you want to talk about, about South Africa or libraries? To tell you quickly a story. There's an artist, a musician called Rodriguez. Um, American artist who apparently was like nobody knew of him he's kind of like 1960s folk kind of stuff right similar to kind of Bob Dylan that kind of scene 
nobody, like he, nobody knew him. In South Africa, because of apartheid, because of all the uh, censorship and stuff, this somebody apparently the story goes, someone smuggled a tape of his or a record of his in to South Africa, and it became massive. S- searching for Sugarman. That's yeah. him. That's him. Oh, massive! And when I was growing up, going to house parties, sixteen-year-old, you know, on the grass playing Rodriguez, it was just a thing. I think I don't think there are any. There are many South Africans, well, particularly South Africans with a background like mine, that don't were not fans or knew had the album or knew the album. It was massive, absolutely massive. Uh, that's what happens with our writing. Like, yeah, I'll like show up in Singapore one day. They're like fifty cents of mine. <laughs> And like, everyone's got this book with their hand down. <laughs> it's like no one read this in America. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's always that. There's always that. Yeah. Just, just, just hope for the future. Well, Logan, thank you so much it's for been a pleasure. taking the time and uh, being on the Delaware episode. Delaware Express. See you next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about 50 States of Mind, visit us on our website, 50statesofmind.org. Or like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. A big thank you to the band Bright Moments for the use of their song Travelers from the album Natives. Questions? Send us an email at 50statesofmindusa at gmail.com. See you next time.